The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, Dr. Brad Lichtenstein. He's board certified in biofeedback and heart rate variability. He's also a specialist in mind body medicine, so you, yes, you, are going to want to hear this. Oh, yeah. Yes, you. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. In the house. I've been waiting for this episode, actually. I'm excited about this. Me too. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? Crushing it. Sweet. Yeah. How about you? Good work. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the lab reports. <laughs> not as not as energetic and jovial as you are. We got to work on that. I know. It's just my general Midwestern demeanor. That's I think. right. Anyhow. If you're out there and you're crushing it, yeah, way to f- make your way over to this podcast, the Genova mm-hmm. podcast, where we talk about functional medicine, uh-huh. integrative therapeutics, uh-huh. and specialty diagnostics, yeah. and biofeedback. I'm so excited about this episode. And if you're excited about this episode, you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the podcast and download, rate, review, hit the stars, all those things. And if you have feedback, you can email that feedback to podcast at gdx.net. Not biofeedback. Just like feedback that they want to email. That's right. Well, if you have biofeedback, then you can ask our next guest, that's right. Dr. Brad Lichtenstein. I've been so excited about this. We've been talking about, oh, you need to decrease your stress, your cortisol response. We did a little bit on HRV in general, but we're going to focus all on mind-body medicine today, which is exciting to me. Yeah, and honestly, I can't think of a better person to talk to mm-hmm. about both the the areas of mind-body medicine, as well as biofeedback, heart rate variability. Um, Dr. Lichtenstein was a professor of multiple clinical courses over mm-hmm. at Bastyr University, where I was trained. Um, and he is just a fantastic speaker in this area. Yeah. Um, he's done a TEDx talk. He's done uh, multiple sessions. He does regular guided meditations. I love um, them. Online, on social media, as well as on his website, The Breast Space. And yeah, I just can't say enough positive things about uh, Dr. Brad. Yeah, he's one of those guys, as soon as you hear his voice, you already become calm. I listen to his social media meditations and I'm obsessed with them. You should be obsessed with them. They're terrific. But I will warn you, if you're listening to this podcast while driving, you're going to become very calm. There should probably be a disclaimer here. That's see that's one of the misnomers, right? If you are actually present and calm and mindful when you're driving, you are less likely to be in an accident. Hmm. It's when you are not being mindful, when you are distracted, when you it makes you much more likely to be in an accident. All right, so if you're listening to this, go get in your car and start driving around. Oh, but here's the flip side of that. If you've got what? an imbalanced autonomic nervous system, uh-huh. you've been in sympathetic all this time. Yeah. A lot of times you have a natural reaction to actually get really, really tired when you go into parasympathetic because you overcompensate. So it's actually probably a better idea for you to be sitting on the floor. I'm so confused. Yeah. So the people that just go, 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 go all day long mm-hmm. and then they crash like hardcore yeah. at seven o'clock in the evening. 
Why are you looking at me? Those are the type of people. Why are you looking at me? I have serious <laughs> concerns about their HBA access. Well, perhaps we should call Dr. Brad. Let's he's going to sort all this out. Yeah. Let's just call him. Michael. Yes. I am so excited that we have Dr. Brad here today. I am also. I needed Dr. Brad today. Stupendously excited. I know. For those of you who are not familiar, Dr. Brad Lichtenstein is a naturopathic physician and professor at Bastyr University where he teaches counseling, mind-body medicine, biofeedback, and nutrition as part of the naturopathic and graduate clinical faculty. His approach to care, which combines years of study in mind-body medicine and biofeedback, depth in somatic psychology, Eastern contemplative practices, yoga and movement, bodywork and end-of-life care, was profoundly shaped by his participation in a joint research study between the University of Washington and Bastyr University, where he provided over 500 guided bedside meditations to hospice patients. I love that. Dr. Lichtenstein received his Doctorate of Naturopathic Medicine from Bastyr University and is BCIA certified in general biofeedback and heart rate variability biofeedback. His chapters on mind-body medicine have been published in the Advanced Clinical Textbook of Naturopathic Medicine and in Integrative Men's Health, and his articles have appeared in several publications and journals. Dr. Lichtenstein speaks nationally on topics ranging from stress reduction, mindfulness and health, mind-body approaches to healing trauma, and issues surrounding end-of-life. And with that... Welcome to the Lab Report, Dr. Lichtenstein. Well, welcome. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. You know, you're a a professor and lecturer on a wide range of topics, but I think one of the central aspects linking a lot of your clinical work is in addressing the nervous system. Um, Can you talk maybe a little bit about just why you've come to focus on the nervous system as a a general focus? That's a great question. Um, (laughs) I'd like to answer that myself. Um, (laughs) But thinking about that... The many people say the nervous system is the master regulator of everything. So if we want to talk about our digestive tract, if we want to talk about our cardiovascular system, if we want to talk about the respiratory system, you know, we we need to talk about the nervous system. I, I think there's even something deeper. We just talk about the whole integration of the whole body. Mm-hmm. Yet I, I've gravitated to and focus on the nervous system because it it puts things in context for people, I think, with more ease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by nervous system, what I'm very explicit in telling the people with whom I work is I'm not just talking about the brain. You know, the nervous system is more than just the brain. It's the the whole spinal cord, all the nerves that go out to the body, the efferents and afferents, you know, so it's everything and it's it's that whole integration. I think that's a great way to make that connection to this integrative mind-body approach to care. It's not just mm. unidirectional, it's bi-directional. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you know, here in functional and integrative medicine, we spend a fair amount of time talking about the stress response from the standpoint of looking at cortisol. But We've heard you speak, and you take this a bit further with your patients, and you get into the polyvagal theory. Can you, can you maybe talk a little bit about what the polyvagal theory is and how that translates to your clinical approach to stress? Yes, I can. It, it, it's interesting because there's a lot of press about the polyvagal theory. I learned it about... 15, 16 years ago, it's, hmm. it was developed at first pro- was proposed by Stephen 
gorges. And the word polyvagal refers to the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve, the largest nerve. It's a wandering nerve. And most people know about the vagus nerve because of its connection with the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And what Porges proposed was a phylogenetic perspective of the development of the vagus nerve. And I have come to learn that some of this is now questioned in the literature. Mm -hmm. And what I mean specifically is this idea about the vagus nerve being two different branches, basically. And this Mm -hmm. is the phylogenetic, the evolutionary perspective, saying that um, reptiles only had more of a dorsal vagus. It's an archaic vagus nerve that was unmyelinated and most of us understand the dorsal vagus. The dorsal vagus is also known as the subdiaphragmatic vagus. And Porges proposed that when the subdiaphragmatic vagus is activated, it leads to immobilization. Hmm. Immobilization where we shut down. And, and I'm, I'm jumping a little bit ahead. Yeah. Um, but the, there's the dorsal vagus and then there's the ventral vagus. And this is the newer mammalian vagus, the supradiaphragmatic, and that regulates our social engagement, how we interact with the world. And in both vagal experiences, it's involved in our heart rate and our lungs, and it slows down our heart rate. It regulates our respiration. The reason this vagal theory was important is because when you talk about stress and you talk about cortisol, we're talking about sympathetic mobilization. What most of us know is the fight or flight response. And Porges came along and said, well, in a stress response, that's not the only thing that happens. And I've heard people for years say, well, there's fight, fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. But I never heard anybody talk about what freeze was because it was just almost the assumption that that was still sympathetic. And it's not sympathetic. Mm. That fight or flight is classic sympathetic mobilization, which could be the sympathetic adrenal medullary axis, which would be more epinephrine and norepinephrine, Mm -hmm. or could be the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which could be cortisol. But some people... And we've all had this experience on some level. Something happens. We get triggered. There's a stress response, and we just collapse. Mm. And what Porges showed is that with a dorsal vagus, now, and that's the questionable part, whether there's a dorsal or ventral vagus, or the other thing that's being debated now is, well, do reptiles really only have a dorsal vagus? They might have a ventral. Mm. Regardless of the phylogenetic origin of the vagus and splitting the vagus, the important thing is to know is that the vagus is involved in a shutdown behavior where it will drop our heart rate, will drop our blood pressure, our breathing slows down, and we freeze. Yeah. Hmm. And so that's – and the, the way out of both sympathetic activation and the way out of immobilization is using the vagus to engage. And, and, and the example I always give is – Anybody who is a parent or a pet owner, I got to talk to us (laughs) pet owners out there. When you're trying to soothe a child, when you're trying to soothe a pet, you know, it doesn't work to be 
mobilized and say, now calm down. It's safe. Everything's okay. Right. You know, right. Don't cry. I'm here. <laughs> what, what's wrong? Um, don't you see me standing here? Um, <laughs> and we all can relate to that when talking to other humans. Yeah. Right. That doesn't sure. work. That doesn't work when you're trying to soothe a child or, or a, a pet. And what we do is we activate this ventral vagus, whether it's the ventral vagus, we activate the vagus that regulates our heart rate, regulates our breathing, and changes connected to other nerves that come out of the nucleus ambiguous with mm. the, the vagus, the vagus 10th cranial nerve. There's something called the ventral vagal complex in the nucleus ambiguous that has the same area of cranial nerve 5, 7, 9, and 11 come out. And these are all supra-diaphragmatic. They all regulate the voice, the muscles of the face, the expression of the face, how we breathe. So how I talk to you, like as I'm modulating my voice right now, that can be more soothing than if I said, okay, I'm modulating my voice now. <laughs> yeah. Right. So hmm. that's the vent, and that's the way out of it. So we can change our breath. We can change our muscles, our posture. We can even sing, change our voice. And that can regulate our nervous system. That's fascinating. It's, it's almost like a bottom-up sort of approach in a way because, yeah. you know, we, we tend to think of, oh, well, the way towards maybe more autonomic balance is to remove the stressful situation from your life, right? And that's, uh -huh. that's not always possible from a clinical perspective. But when we know these interactions, you can also come at it from a bottom-up approach, from a somatic approach, which is kind of like what you're saying, how these nerves are intertwined. Is that Like is that activating accurate? the vagus nerve, you're saying? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because what are you going to do to the child who's crying and just wants connection, or the child who's wet, or the child who is um, hungry? And you can't cognitively, rationally mm -hmm. talk to them. Well, you can try, mm -hmm. but they don't understand the words you're saying. But what they can do is connect with the muscles of your face. And see, this is what we do. We, we read people so much. We're always looking at the another person. And it, it is culturally dependent. Uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's work uh, on emotions and understanding emotions has made that clear that, that what we think of as an emotional expression is culturally based for most of us. But we learn at an early age that if my eyes are wide open and I'm gritting my teeth, I might be scared. Or if I collapse and cross my arms over and I sigh a lot that I'm sad or depressed. Yeah. But mm. infants learn this at an early age and they don't understand the words we're saying, but they do understand our intonation and our tone. So they can get the sense of whether I'm trying to soothe you mm. or whether I'm trying to control you or be angry with you, yeah. right. whatever. I was at a conference once where Porges played music and he played, I don't know if you know, uh, Peter and the Wolf. Mm -hmm. I think sure. that's by Tchaikovsky. Yeah. Yeah. And you know when the birds are there because of the woodwinds and the flutes and it's upbeat. And you know when the wolf is there because it's this low sound. Mm -hmm. And so Porges posits out there that think about predators, predators and catastrophes they're all low sounds earthquakes are low rumbles oh. um, when when my cat is upset with me it will not growl but it will make that noise in a in its lower register 
But when it's hungry and it wants me to come by or wants to be pet, <laughs> petted, it's, it's in a higher meow, meow. You know? uh -huh. So we hear that. We know that when I'm mad, I will talk like that. And when I'm happy, then I'll go, oh, yes, that sucks. And you can hear that intonation. And back to what you said, Michael, it's we can regulate our nervous system and our vagus just by changing how we speak, how we breathe, how we hold the muscles of our face, which then translate to the whole body because it's all connected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's interesting. That's so it's fascinating. And, you know, I've never, ever considered the mechanism of the freeze response nor ever like have i ever considered that you can actively engage the vagus nerve rather than remove the stressor i yeah. find that so fascinating and how are we going to i just heard the dalai lama speak uh at the mind life institute this this past few months and he was saying kind of like cognitive psychology will say is there a problem if there's a problem to solve you solve the problem you know, if the floodgates are coming and the flood is coming, you mobilize, activate that sympathetic nervous system, right. move, run, put up the barrier, do something. Right. But what happens when there's nothing you can do anymore and you're still suffering? Then we can learn to regulate. We're doing this during COVID times, right? Yeah. And, and this is the reality. Well, we can't necessarily change that reality, but we can we can work on our response to it so that we don't activate the nervous system in a negative way. Yeah, and you know, with with that, we hear a lot about safety as being one particular aspect of at least from a top-down perspective how we regulate and and come into a little bit of autonomic balance, or at least we hear safety being a concept that comes a lot of out of trauma work and from the counseling world. And that's so relevant to what's happening right now. Like, how would you say we can cultivate this concept of safety when, you know, it does feel like there's, you know, either a, a fire outside or, or there's a pandemic going on? Like, how do you, how do you achieve that? Well, I think that's the, the, I think what you just said was really important because that's the word that I use with everyone. I start with everyone, even my students, when we're talking about it, is the bottom line is safety. We, our nervous system, and this is why I say nervous system as well, because 80% of the vagus is afferent. 80% mm -hmm. mm. of the, the vagus is picking up cues in our body, what's going on with inflammatory cytokines and other things. So it's always picking up signals and many times it's below our conscious awareness we're not aware whether you know if something is triggering us and so so all of a sudden five minutes later we go why am i sweating why is my heart beating um it came out of the blue and what i tell everyone is it didn't come out of the blue mm. if you ate a food to which you're allergic and you start to release histamine and serotonin that affects your breathing rate your vagus picked that up so safety isn't just cognitive safety, cognitive appraisal of safety. It's also a physiological safety, environmental factors, but we're picking it up. So the first point I'm trying to make is that we're picking up something that's saying, I'm not safe. I'm not safe. And then as a result, our nervous system will follow. It will either, if we've been conditioned, mobilize it will either mobilize to do something and activate those sympathetic processes, or if it knows I can't survive, 
it acts much like possums do, like lizards do. It shuts down. And the point to remember about the mechanism of the shutdown is a predator doesn't want to eat something that's already dead. Scavengers do. Mm-hmm. Predator Predators mm-hmm. want to kill it because mm-hmm. they don't know if it's fresh. So right. we shut down and our whole nervous system freezes everything. Our muscles freeze. That, that possum, the facial expression freezes. The body doesn't move when it's hitting it. Um, you know, it's, it's pawing at it and it doesn't move. Its heart rate stops. I read one study that said, and I've been repeating this to everyone I talk to, that said about 30 to 40% of the mice in the wild die because their heart rate stops. They immobilize and it drops their heart rate. I don't know how they did that study. I mean, I've, been, I've been talking about this a lot. When I talk to everybody, it's like, do they have little monitors on the heart on mice? But the mouse will see a predator and freeze. And Porges has said, and I've heard other people in the literature talk about that your heart rate can drop. It can drop appreciably when you get into that freeze response. And anybody who's had that vasovagal response, anybody who's passed out when they see a needle, come on. Blood draws. People have blood draws all the time. No one has died from a blood draw. Uh You can't cognitively tell yourself you're safe. Well, you, you, you actually can. That is a mind-body technique you can do. You can practice rehearsing doing it. But in that moment, you see the needle, you pass out, your blood pressure drops, your heart rate drops, your breathing drops, you're going into that immobilization phase. Hmm. So I, I guess I kind of expanded a little bit on the question. Oh, I love it. But it's, it's safety is the first thing. And if we don't feel safe, and what I try to teach student clinicians is how you are with your clients, your patients can foster safety or, or not. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves now is these medical records, right? And Mm -hmm. when we were in person with people, Mm -hmm. providers turn their back type or when they're looking and they're typing and you just said, so tell me about that trauma. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And you're not there. That's not safe. So there's a lot of other levels. There's so many levels. But the starting point, I think, in all healthcare needs to be addressing how safe does this person feel in my office, outside in the world, on all levels. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, that's just going to ripple in so many different directions, you know, not only just with respect to rapport and the relationship and then how compliant, how willing, how motivated the patient's going to be, but just in, in so many different ways. I mean, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and it kind of segues a little bit into the aspects of biofeedback and heart rate variability and our, our ability to regulate ourselves by kind of self-monitoring and, and HRV is becoming a little bit more well-known these days with things like Elite HRV and Aura Ring and mm-hmm. Whoop and Whoop, things like yeah. that. But how would you describe biofeedback to some of the clinicians that might be listening that aren't familiar? Or, and how do you use HRV in your practice as a therapy? I'm smiling right now because I'm wearing my Aura Ring and my Whoop <laughs> and, um, as an experiment for the past maybe about six months, I have been measuring my heart rate variability every morning mm-hmm. um, just to, to, to notice this because I teach it. Right. Um, yeah. So biofeedback is simply the process of monitoring 
physiological experiences in the body. So that could be muscle tension with electromyography. It could be sweat with electrodermal activity. You're measuring the sweat on your palms, mm -hmm. palms of the hands, common. Um, measuring skin temperature, usually of the distal extremities, because each of these relate to the nervous system and stress response versus some other normal mechanisms like thermal regulation. You can measure heart rate. Most of us know how to measure the heart rate, but the variability, which I'll define in a minute, is another thing we can measure. We can measure brain waves um, and we can measure respiration rate. Blood pressure is not as easy to measure with biofeedback devices. And these are just sensors that you can attach easily, non-invasively to the body so you can keep track of that and many people who wear fitbits you know you're you're getting feedback the importance with biofeedback is you get that feedback in real time and it's fed back to the individual in a way that they can use yeah. so for example emg biofeedback which is i always say sometimes the funnest I put that in air quotes, way of doing biofeedback because you just attach sensors to muscles and people can see in real time when they raised their shoulders, lowered their shoulders, and, and then they can exert some, what classically they said is control. I don't like that word because, right. mm -hmm. you know, I think we're all control freaks. Um, <laughs> what, one, of my, one of my students said that to me. They said, do you really want to use the word control? And I was like, no, let's talk about modulation. <laughs> So we can modulate our muscles. We can change our posture. Sometimes we're not even aware that we have chronic muscle tension because of the chair we're sitting on and how it tilts our pelvis. And that translates to muscle tension up in the neck. And it is nothing about releasing our muscles in our neck. It's about changing our pelvis. So this is where EMG biofeedback can be really fun because you get to experiment and play with things and see how that changes your physiology. So EMG, muscle tension, it's measuring action potential of muscle firing. Uh, sweat has often been used in stress reduction world because we sweat, the eccrine glands in the hands are regulated by sympathetic activation and eccrine glands, of course, are activated by acetylcholine, actually, uh, even though it's sympathetic. And so... The idea is the more the hands sweat, the more you're in sympathetic activation. And one of the things I do when I'm teaching this and when I use this with patients is we'll do what Carl Jung did decades ago. He used to do word association using EMG, uh, GSR, galvanic skin response, sweat response. Mm -hmm. And so you'll just say kitten, uh, you know, ocean. I don't know. Maybe you don't say ocean right now, but you say different <laughs> words and you wait and you say mother-in-law, you say, and you'll watch the response. And many times people aren't even aware that that word triggers them. Yeah. Maybe their muscles don't tense, but they'll see this appreciable jump in their skin conductance. That's sympathetic activation. It's an immediate response. And so that can gain insight for the individual of like, wow, I am being triggered by things and I didn't even know that I was. Yeah. So biofeedback was really interesting to me. It's, it's, it's a great tool to help people create more awareness about what's going on. The goal of biofeedback, in my opinion, and many practitioners' opinion, is that you no longer need 
the device. It's to eventually get off the device that you create enough awareness in yourself that you go, oh, that's affecting me. Oh, mm. I can see. I, I, it's to give you a tool to create more awareness and then modulation. Yeah. That's, that's interesting too. I mean, it, cause you were talking earlier about how much the body is sensing internally and how much it's monitoring internally and that how much of our fight or flight response or sympathetic is coming from something that the body is sensing. And if we can just get in tune with that, if we can just become aware of that through things like biofeedback, then that's going to go a long way to help us self monitor in a way. Exactly. Can let me can I share a story? Sure. Um, and this connects with with HRV biofeedback. Yeah. So, just the other day, uh, I was going to talk about a patient, but I can talk about an amalgam of patients because I I do this all the time. Uh, a, a patient was telling me she made a statement something about well, you know, I wake up and I have this anxiety, which I never understand what an emotion is. I always tell people it's like, what's anxiety? Not to be a difficult, or, but I say, what's an anxiety? Like mm -hmm. one of the things I say to both of you, get mad at me, but don't think anything and don't tense a single muscle. Hmm. <laughs> My students have heard me say this for years. It's huh. like, if you think, oh, why is he going off on this story? And then you get, <laughs> you might be able to feel that anger. But if you don't think anything, and then you just tense your fists and you raise your shoulders and clench your teeth like you can imagine I'm doing now, you'll begin to feel what you might call anger. Yeah. So yeah. what is an emotion? If you change your body, and doesn't everyone know this? This is why I believe cannabis is getting legal everywhere. I do have, you know, it has some medicinal benefits. I don't even want to debate that question. Mm -hmm. But what does it do? You relax your body. It's hard to be anxious. You, Some of those people who drink, and when you drink, you are happy, and then you can dance. But other people, you know, it affects everybody differently. But the people who take muscle relaxants, and all of a sudden, they're not worried by it at anything. Mm. One of the things, that, and this connects to heart rate variability, one of the things that's happening is a lot of doctors are prescribing beta blockers now. Mm -hmm. for anxiety. What are we doing? We're regulating our blood pressure and our heart rate and you can't be anxious. So this goes back to what you said, both of you said earlier. It's like you might not be able to control the environment in those situations out there, but you're regulating your body. Mm -hmm. And we can do it without the need of these medications. Uh, so back to my patient said something about, you know, I'm anxious and and then she said, oh, I just start to think about what could go wrong. And as we talked about it, what we found out, and I pressed her on this, most of the time when we and myself say, oh, I'm thinking about what could go wrong, I'm not thinking about what, I'm not wondering what will go wrong. I'm envisioning sure. what will go wrong. And there's a huge difference because envisioning is a mind-body practice. Envisioning is mentally rehearsing an image. I mean, if I, you know, for any of your listeners who are afraid of needles, if I just start to say, oh, wow, they brought a three-inch needle in to break, you know, they're seeing it in their mind's eye and their yeah. body's starting to react. Yeah. And see, that's the thing because we could start to revision things. That's where guided imagery and sometimes the forms of meditation can come in and that can change your nervous system. So when she realized that 
she's mentally rehearsing an image. She thought, oh, wow, I can do something about that. Yeah. And so that's, mm. that's important. Uh, and connecting this to heart rate variability. So when you're in heart rate variability is measuring the time difference between heartbeats. So, you know, if your heart rate is 60 beats per minute, that would be a thousand milliseconds between each heartbeat. But nobody's heartbeat stays static unless, you, of course, you're on certain medications or if you have a pacemaker. Right. And we want the hearts to change. Like, you know, if you stand up and run for the bus and then you sit down and you go to sleep, you want your heart rate to be able to change. It needs yeah. to be that flexible. And the reason I believe people are gravitating to heart rate variability now is the research, and I can tell you the specific research too, the research is showing that a decreased heart rate variability across the board, and it depends on how you measure it, and there's a lot of factors in that, but the decreased heart rate variability across the board is linked to a de an increase in mortality and morbidity specifically for cardiovascular disease, and now they're suggesting it's almost across the board for all diseases. Hmm. Well. And, and you know, as you gather that information from HRV and other types of biofeedback, some of that then gets into trying to help people regulate that using mind-body medicine approaches, which is kind yes. of your specialty here. Yeah. And yes. it, it's common to hear about the how and the why of meditation, even though most people find that difficult to maintain a practice. But also part of that is mindfulness. And as you're dealing with these patients, can you speak to what mindfulness is and how it relates back to helping them regulate their nervous system? Oh, great, great question. Uh, these are like huge, wonderful questions. Um, <laughs> you know, and clearly, as you can listen to the intonation of my voice, I get excited by these conversations. <laughs> a harp in the middle of an interview, Michael? Yeah, that's what we call a teaser in the biz. Are we in the biz? I don't know what the biz is. <laughs> well, I'm excited because there's more Brad Lichtenstein to come. That's true. And that's why we're cutting it right there, because we're going to have part two of the Dr. Lichtenstein interview, where we get more into mind-body medicine, some of the approaches, techniques therein, uh, and for the next episode. Can't wait. Next time on The Lab Report, more Dr. Brad. Part two. He's going to talk more about mindfulness and actually lead us into meditation. Don't forget the fireball question. That's right. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. I got attacked by hornets this weekend. What? Yeah. I accidentally found a hornet's nest on my back porch. You accidentally found one? Yeah. I had to run in my house that's, and put frozen broccoli on my leg. There was all these bites all over my leg. That's not how you want to find a hornet's nest. Thanks. That would have been good information a couple of days ago. You, you want to steer clear of them in general. Mm, thanks. You're welcome. <laughs>